0: either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. you sorry. You waste all our film.
1: (laughs) It's so bad.
0: Welcome, neighbors. We've got animated films. We've got documentaries. We've got crime thrillers. We've got teary biopics. We've got it all. Welcome. This is the Screening Room Podcast, and she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, And we're from madwolf.com. Some big releases to talk about, some smaller movies as well, but let's start With the true story of a real-life friendship between Fred Rogers and a journalist, it's called A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. This piece will be for an issue about heroes. Do you
1: consider yourself a hero? We are trying to give the world positive ways of dealing with their feelings. Yeah, like what? There are many things you can do. You can play all the lowest keys on a piano at the same time. I think the best thing we can do is to let people know that each one of them is precious. It was wonderful.
0: Well, it was just, what, two years ago that we got the documentary mm-hmm. on Fred Rogers, yeah. which was great. Oh, it was and so good. And almost, then almost immediately after that, we started hearing that there was going to be uh, a biopic, and who was going to play him but Tom Hanks, because of course.
1: Exactly. Who else could have done it, really? <laughs> uh, and, and it's, it's funny, because I think all of us heard it in our own separate ways and thought, oh, well, that's perfect.
0: It's, it's interesting. We always jokingly, but kind of truthfully, refer to Tom Hanks as GD National Treasure, Tom Hanks. And this morning when I was calling one of the radio talk shows talking about it, one of the hosts on the radio was talking about how much of basically a treasure... Uh, tom hanks is and and i caught it at the top of my throat I almost <laughs> said gd national treasure tom, which i could have done i would right. have gotten away with that but it just you know got a little bit too close to, to slip in there because we were on live so uh i didn't say it but let's say it now gd national treasure tom hanks that's right for a
1: gd national treasure fred rogers that's true uh and the truth is that and i didn't realize this at first it th- Fred Rogers is not the main character in right, this. Right, right. And they
0: again, these people, almost everyone that we've uh, talked about this movie with and reviewed uh, the movie, even this morning on TV, that is something that surprises everyone, that he's not the main character. But when you see the movie, you understand.
1: Right, because it's based or it's inspired by, really, a uh, an Esquire article. That started off as what was supposed to be about a four hundred word kind of a puff piece. Esquire was gonna do an entire theme on heroes, and they sent one of their journalists who's kind of known for being cynical and a ball buster, because <laughs> they thought that would be funny to yeah. have him go interview Fred Rogers. Right. And what happened was he really is like that. Mm-hmm. And he just broke this guy's barriers down, and this guy wound up writing a 10,000-word story on how he is a hero, and it became the cover article.
0: Isn't that amazing? In re- reality, the journalist's name was Tom Genode, and here his character name is Lloyd Vogel. but and basically the same guy.
1: I think one of the reasons they did that is in comparing the two, to make it a film, you know, they, they introduced yeah. a whole backstory for the journalist that didn't really exist. Right. It is a fictionalized account, right?
0: Which we say all the time. This is not a documentary. There is a great documentary we just yes. talked about. Please look it up, uh, and it's it's almost operates on a very similar plane. In that, yes, that's how Fred Rogers really yeah. was. It yeah. was not an act, right? But they do it in a, in, in the way that you describe through the relationship with this journalist to let it be illustrated how much he changes the hard, hard edges of this man.
1: Yeah, because, it, you know, it, there's an absurdity, and, and I think it makes it useful that the main character is this kind of jaded journalist because he just keeps trying to get the guy's real story, and the guy just keeps being Fred Rogers, yeah. and he just rolls his eyes like, fine, okay, we're still doing this, until little by little by little, mm-hmm. you know, he wears him down. And, and then he, th- this man recognizes that basically he could be a better person. And I think that probably is Fred Rogers' greatest gift, is that it's hard to spend any time watching him and not think, I could be a better person.
0: Well, I think what it also does, you talked about the backstory of this fictional writer here, which includes a very troubling relationship with his father, played by Chris Cooper. He's
1: he's wonderful in this, as he just always is. And it's so good to see him again.
0: But in doing that, it's also a way within this movie to shine a light on male anger. Yeah. And I think maybe they couldn't have done that if they just would have stuck to as close to the facts as as maybe a documentary would. No, and I, I th- it's one of the the another, other wise choices that the filmmakers make here.
1: No, I think you're right, and and it's uh, Maryelle Heller who directed. Can you ever forgive yeah. me? Right, I think yeah. that was just last year, maybe two years ago, with Melissa McCarthy. Yeah. So good, really another good, really good, another based on true events kind of a story, and she does a wonderful job, I think, of embracing the absurdity, but still keeping the whole film very, very grounded in reality. She gets great performances across the board, of course, primarily from (laughs) Tom Hanks. And one of the things that I think Tom Hanks does really well is that he doesn't treat Fred Rogers with awe. He just, as no one else can, right? The rest of us cannot. That's kind of the point of the film. He accepts him as who he is. He Mm -hmm. accepts this is who he truly is. And it's it's a really unerring and quite lovely Yeah, because it's easy for
0: us to say, well, Tom Hanks, of course, GD National Treasure. But think right. about it. That's a hard role to play, Mr. Rogers. You, you could so easily come off as an impersonation. Exactly. Uh, to get it to, um, ex- like you said, accept him and have it show through the performance without... Look, I'm trying to talk that way, right. or I'm trying to throw my shoe that way. Right, it's totally different. Yeah, it's I, it's not easy to do, even for someone as as
1: talented and as revered as Tom Hanks. And also, I think that that for somebody that is so recognizable, to be able to disappear and become somebody else who is equally recognizable, yeah. you know, I, I think also it's um it's a subtle enough of performance. It's certainly not showy. That it's it's my may be easy to kind of just you know disregard yeah, it's Tom Hanks again, you know, and he's playing a good guy. What's the <laughs> there but he's really just wonderful and
0: also we should mention um matthew rise who plays uh the journalist lloyd vogel
1: who i think is primarily known for being on the tv show the americans Mm
0: -hmm. not a show we watch because we don't watch no
1: (laughs) but he's uh he does a really good job he does a really really good job in i think kind of a somewhat thankless role of being you know the the jerk Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) but his um His slow maturity, his slow sort of transformation and and acceptance of his own pain is is really quite moving.
0: Yeah, and especially if you were going to pair it with the documentary. Oh, yeah. Uh, If you haven't seen the documentary already, I think the approach that this movie takes might be even more appreciated. To show from, okay, you've got the documentary, which examines his life. He is, of course, the main character. And then you've got this to to use one man's story to illustrate how Mr. Rogers changed people's lives. Yeah. Very well done all the way around.
1: One of the things I think, though, I like the best about this movie is that there are obviously there are things that have been padded and created, fictionalized. And you might watch and go, that must be one of those moments. That must be one of those moments. You would be surprised at how many Fred Rogers moments are real, Mm -hmm. are authentic. The ones that stick out to you like, well, he didn't really do that. Yes, he did.
0: (laughs) Yeah. uh, An amazing story and well told. A beautiful day in the neighborhood. Next up, it's the sequel to a movie you probably heard about. It's Anna, it's Elsa, it's Kristoff, it's Olaf and Sven leaving Arendelle to travel to an ancient, autumn-bound forest of an enchanted land. It's Frozen 2.
1: Elsa, the past is not what it seems. You must find the truth. Go north across the enchanted lands and into the unknown. But be careful. We have always feared Elsa's powers were too much for this world. Now we must hope. I won't let anything happen to her.
0: I think one of the big surprises here is so many people don't realize it's been six years since Frozen 1 and six years of let it go. (laughs) And this one is it's pretty simple. If obviously if you have kids of a certain age, you're going to be going. You have no
1: choice. You really Let's don't. Let's be honest.
0: You don't. Um, and if you liked the first one, you're going to like this one just probably a little bit less. Yeah. Because everybody's back. You've got the same uh, directors, writers, uh, co-directors, co-writers. You've got the same songwriters. You've got the same voice cast. Right. With a couple of additions. Um, and everything is just pretty much aimed at keeping this rolling. Yeah. Look, we we had something good last time. We're not going to try to reinvent the wheel here, but which is fine because it is. It's perfectly fine family entertainment. Um, there's going to be a new song to sing uh, besides "Let It Go." It's called "The Great Unknown." Get used to it. Uh, but but like everything else in part two, I think it just comes up a little short of part one. Um, it's the the music isn't quite as as good. It's not quite as funny. Although, we should say Olaf, Josh Gad, does have some funny bits.
1: He really does. Um, I'm not a fan of this franchise. Mm-hmm. I am a fan of Josh Gad's Olaf, I yeah. think he was hilarious in the first one. He's got a lot of really, really funny bits in this one. And in particular, he does this reenactment of the entire plot of the first movie, sort of to catch up the new, you know, all of the new uh, characters so that they understand, like, what's going on in this relationship with these sisters. And that is hysterical.
0: Yeah, because it's one of a couple wink wink moments in this movie to parents who probably had to sit through the first one maybe a few more times right. than they liked. <laughs> So that's appreciated, um, but and and then the adventure takes them to this faraway magical forest where it's up to Elsa to not only free some some captives that have been held in this forest for so so long, but also learn some secrets about uh, her family's past. And that includes, of course, uh, Anna, uh, her sister, but specifically how she got her magical powers. Right. So that's really the adventure here. And it's going to be one where it's very familiar right away. You know these characters. You know the voices. I mean, the the singers, uh, Kristen Bell and Dina Menzel, uh, are back singing as well as they sing, which is quite well. It is quite well. Um, But it's the the double-edged sword of, over the last 20-some years, the success and the growth of animated movies due, in large part, to Disney and to Pixar – have shown us what's capable with animated movies. How you, how much more resonance you can have in telling these stories when you are talking about Up, when you are talking about Toy Story franchise, um, Zootopia, even. Yeah. Um, and this is far not even close to that.
1: No, even if you are a fan, I think for me there was a real dead spot when Kristoff has his own song, has his big oh, yeah. solo song. Yeah. And I think, and it is meant to be sort of, it is. Lost another in the woods, Yeah, it's, it's called, another like yeah. wink, wink mm-hmm. kind of a song. And um, it's just, it, it could be funny if it were about a verse shorter. It, it really kind of, I think, really slows the plot down. Yeah. But my biggest issue with this film is it's basically... Watch the white girls save the world, and they split up for a while in this one, and uh, there is uh, some of the added characters bring some diversity to the story, which is nice because there was no diversity in the first story. But what's problematic in the second story is that it, it actually just sets up a white savior issue, which I don't think any film really needs at this point anymore, and certainly not a children's film.
0: Yeah, but you do still have there's some the good sisterhood bonds there, and they're, they're only uh, strengthened, I guess, when they talk about so much family. There's so much family history going on. But, you know, the themes here are very, very broad and generic for the littlest of kids. It's, they are. It's do the right thing. Right. It's take it one step at a time. Yeah. Very broad, very generic. And I will say, the kids around us, the little kids, were really into it. Oh,
1: they loved it. There was a little girl named Ruby who was <laughs> sitting next to George who was, A, adorable, B, wearing a tiara and rocking it. Yeah. And, see, you know, she was just hanging on the, the back of the seat in front of her. And yeah. you know what? There are some. You should maybe want to know this. There, There's a very emotional scene mm-hmm. where Anna thinks basically that all is lost. And, and And it could, you know, you might want to just sort of, hug the little one close during that scene, you know, <laughs> yeah. because it, it did seem to really resonate with the little kids in the audience. But they loved it. They loved every they really minute of did.
0: it. You, they really did. So as we said at the top, if you have a certain age child, you know you're going anyway. Yeah. They're probably going to love it. And you're going to think,
1: oh, okay. I like and, Olaf
0: still. And there you go. And that's Frozen too. Next up, one not for the kids: crime thriller. An embattled NYPD detective is thrust into a citywide manhunt for a pair of cop killers after uncovering a massive and unexpected conspiracy. Twenty-one Bridges.
1: What happened? Worst day in eighteen years. How many cops? Eight. Why were they here? They responded to a robbery.
0: Gunfire! of the down.
1: Automatic weapons, two shooters. They have training. I will find yeah. them. We just killed cops. We need to run. We gotta move fast. Cars not ours, plates are stolen. If we don't catch these guys in the next three or four hours, they vanish. <laughs> Why are you gonna do this? Close the island. The 21 bridges in and out of Manhattan. Shut them down. <laughs> three rivers, close them. Four tunnels, block them. Stop every train and loop the subways. Then we flood the island with blow Man,
0: star, star. Chadwick Bozeman is the lead here. And it's nice because you forget, as his star has risen, and he's been very good in these films, but he's, he's mainly done it with either biographies of yep. historical real people or Black Panther. Yeah. And this is one where it's neither of those right and it's nice. It's
1: just a fictional character right and uh, And so you get to see him, I think uh, break out a little bit of the confines of either trying to be a superhero, which is this very specific type of performance mm-hmm. or trying to live up to to you know James Brown Thurgood Marshall, living human breathing <laughs> Jackie being Robinson. yeah, yeah. Jackie Robinson. yeah so it it's nice to see him get the chance to just create a character,
0: yeah, and this is a cop thriller that. Just brings all the tropes, all the, the cliches in there, and somehow, just on the sheer talent of, of the cast, I think, makes it still exciting and still fast paced. It's got some, a, a couple of twists, I guess, that you'll probably see coming. It leans on a lot of things that we've seen before. Not much fresh here, but it found a way to make it entertaining.
1: So, Because it's not just Bozeman, it's also right. J.K. Simmons. Simmons, who's who's uh, remarkable, remarkable talent, and brings something I think palpable to every role, and also Sienna Miller, who I never, ever, ever <laughs> recognize because she is such a chameleon. She really is. She's great at having different looks
0: and different accents, which you know the the non Americans are great. They're much better than Americans at, at the <laughs> accents. They really are. They sound much better as as authentic like New Yorkers than. Americans trying to sound like British, yeah, most of the time, yeah.
1: So you mean specifically British actors are better at doing different American accents? Yeah, I think. I didn't um, want. To, I didn't want to. Uh, I think Australians. I don't know if you saw The Heart of the Sea, right? That, <laughs> okay. But yeah. they have and and uh, with Brendan Gleeson, who's amazing, but he's Irish. They had a hard time. I think everybody has a hard time with the Boston accent. Well,
0: though. you know, I can say this because I'm so good with accents. No, as any- no, no. No. Anybody that has listened <laughs> to this podcast knows I can I can rate the action. Plug your ears, Omar. <laughs> but anyway, it is uh, it's director Brian Kirk who's done a lot of TV. He's only done one other feature here, and still he he does a lot of things you're going to recognize. The aerial shots of New York City, you know the the shaky cam pursuits. Okay, we get all that. We've seen all that, but somehow he he's able to add just a little bit of grit. keeps the keeps the uh, pace really rocking. And with the this uh, the talent of his cast still makes it go down pretty well. There's this drug robbery gone wrong, and eight cops end up dead, and they're all under the jurisdiction of this Captain uh, J.K. Simmons, and he's happy to have. Andre, the detective played by Chadwick Boseman, on the case, because Andre has a reputation as uh, not holding back on the trigger. Mm. So Captain thinks that if you're on this, you're going to find these guys, and you're going to save everybody some time and just off them. Okay? (laughs) But then it's made clear that uh, the mayor, though, would like a nice, campaign-friendly show trial. So keep these guys alive. So you've got some conflict there. And it actually tries to get into really the maybe some paradoxes, some some uh, push and pull of a life as a law enforcement agent, an mm-hmm. uh, agent, law enforcement officer, because Andre, you hear early on, he's got cop DNA. Mm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because his, the, his uh, father was killed in action years ago. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of those cop cliches, but... It's just a thing where you're able to, if you get enough talented people, yeah. you can overcome a lot. Mm-hmm. We, we always say it starts with the writing, and it does. And it's interesting. If you watch this movie without looking at the credits, you think, well, you know, that script works about half the time. Right. And then you look at the credits and you go, well, it's got two writers, and one of them has a really sterling resume. <laughs> and one doesn't. So I'm thinking, yep, that checks out. It works about half the time. And other times, some of the, the dialogue, you're like, oh, if these actors weren't so good, that would just lay there yeah. and really kind of call attention to how just shallow it is. But it's one of those, I hate to say it's better than it ought to be, yeah. but that is kind of how mm-hmm. I was left with this. It, it moves, it, you feel like nothing is wasted, you're not really bored, because these actors always make it interesting to watch, and, and the, the pace is... Quick, and if you like the bullets flying and the chases and the bloodshed, <laughs> you'll get that. You probably won't be surprised as to where it goes, but you know what? Is it entertaining? Yes, it is. And that's 21 Bridges. <laughs> get some smaller movies next in limited release. This is three generations grappling with a life changing experience during one day of a vacation in Portugal. It's called Frankie. <laughs> And people still come here to wash themselves in this miraculous water.
1: Yeah, they do, because the water is said to cure people of all maladies. I don't know what after Frankie means. There's no after Frankie for me.
0: I'm going to ask you both at least to pretend that you accept my fate. For the sake of this trip, for the family, I want us to have a good time, which for me now means just time together.
1: Iris X writes and directs this day in the life, just drops you in for a single day. And Frankie is the matriarch of the family who's brought everybody together on on vacation. And she's played by uh, Isabel Huppert.
0: So right there, you think, okay, that should at least get you some interest because, especially, I mean, she's had a great career, but especially in the last few years, boy, she has really turned in some great performances. Yes,
1: she really, really has. And then for me, uh, the second great reason to watch this is that her husband is played by uh, Brendan Gleeson, uh, who another is another big talent. He's one of my absolute all-time favorites, and the two of them together, it's an it's such an interesting dynamic because he is a massive individual. <laughs> well, especially compared to her. As she thing, is and small. And she's so little. She's so little. There's not a spare ounce on her. And she's very... I mean, she's just so little. And yet she is the firebrand who really holds the family together, mm-hmm. makes decisions, kind of maybe tries to manipulate a little more than she ought to, is used to getting her way. And he's just this soft, just... Big barrel of emotions, and they're so cute together. It's such a lovely performance, the two of these guys together. Well, it's great when you have a movie that lets, let's
0: call them mature, mature actors like that have these roles You know? Yeah, we
1: talk about that all the time. And how often you'll see casting and you'll be so excited and then you'll realize that the movie is mainly about kind of laughing at elderly people. Mm -hmm. This is not what this movie is. This movie absolutely respects them and treats them as humans with foibles and with, you know, and who are facing this situation and making decisions that seem very logical in that for that character, but you know, with the with the sort of perspective that the audience has, you realize, yeah, that's not. You know, yeah. that's not going to work out. And it's it's a very meandering story. It's uh, it's not tidy in any way, as family friendships are generally are not. It's got a great supporting cast, including Marissa Tomei. Looks great. You know... Um, but a meandering nature, if you're going to take
0: a movie that is a day in the life, you know, days kind of meander. Yeah, they do. And it sort of feels like it fits that.
1: And I, I think that the way the characters separate and come together, and the way the camera follows each of them as they kind of walk these different paths inside this town, it really does reflect something believable and realistic, not just about family dynamics, but about life.
0: Mm-hmm. And of course, as you might guess, just for the performances alone, yeah. worth giving it a look, and that is Frankie. And a couple of documentaries out this week. The first one is the sensational story of the National Enquirer, the infamous tabloid with a grasp of its readers' darkest curiosities, scandalous.
1: The ultimate mission, sell the most papers of anybody in the world. I don't think any of us realize what was to come. It's the most perfectly
0: placed piece of propaganda in America. The most powerful people change the news narrative at will.
1: They did something that everybody wanted to see.
0: Was there things that were done that were outright illegal? Maybe. You might see this the complete title after scandalous as a colon and you could see it two different titles the true story or the untold story of the National Enquirer either way it's the same movie and it's it is really interesting let's put it that way even if you're not that familiar with National the National Enquirer it's been around for a while and it's got a very interesting history of its birth yeah uh, that I did not realize right. no neither how, did I how it really got going but in the early days as you might guess, there was just one unyielding principle by the owner, and that was sell the most papers, <laughs> period. <laughs> and they talked to a lot. director is Mark Landsman, And he uses a nice little stylistic introduction to everybody that he talks to by using a, a bat, like a like a work ID, like a badge, a right, press badge. Right. So I'm like, okay, I like that. And he talks to a lot of former reporters and editors on the Inquirer. And they tell some great stories. And it's clear that even though it was tough, they... They miss it. Right. It's clear with a lot of these people, they were really invigorated by the working environment. And it's described as one that was just crazy. I mean, unchecked expense accounts. You need to fly off somewhere to go get a story? Do it. (laughs) And they weren't worried about it. And parties every Friday where they just brought in all this food and drink and just, you know, the, the money was flowing. And then they they also knew that, yeah, probably every Friday someone was going to get fired. Yeah. But uh, OK, hope it's not <laughs> me. So very, very cutthroat. And all that is really interesting. But where it really makes its mark here is when the Inquirer started moving in a different direction. And you if you've been to the checkout aisle any here recently, and you've seen the Inquirer, in the last few years, you've noticed how much more political it's gotten. Mm-hmm. Instead of the latest celebrity divorce on the cover, it's going to be something about Hillary or Trump or Obama, or, or. and how did we get there? And that's the meat and potatoes of this story. And it's it's interesting how it, it starts to happen when, ironically, the Inquirer starts to get more respect as an actual reporting vehicle because when entertainment and journalism clashed with scandals like O.J. Simpson Mm -hmm. and Gary Hart, Mm -hmm. they actually started coming up with some real scoops. And they admitted, yes, we pay. We pay our sources. Right. But they really started getting some scoops and they started to get more respect there. But then when the original owner passed away and you started to get different owners that have political agendas right. then and that was something the what you see is these former editors talk about that was something they were adamant always adamant about in the old days with no political agenda whatsoever just money just money sell the most papers yep. period yep. and how they talk about that the the always the model of operating was start with some sliver of truth and then just sensationalize it to the nth degree right to the point where now it's We've gotten to the point where no less than Carl Bernstein, the famous Watergate reporter, looks at the landscape today and says it's just not possible to have a fact-based debate anymore. Right. That's where we've come to. And it's really hard to argue with him. Mm-hmm. And so how do we get from A to B and what part did the National Enquirer play in that? So that's the story here. Once you get through the, the uh, history of the paper... Then you really start to see. Okay, now we're now we're looking at legacy. We're looking at uh, unintended consequences, things like that. Sure. And, until you get to the end, and somebody says, "Well, how did we get?" And somebody poses the question, "How did a inquirer subject, a favorite inquirer subject, Donald Trump, get to be president of the United States?" And that is really the main hook of of this movie. How did we evolve to this? And one of the the most effective pieces in this is when one of the former reporters still has a recording of what—who who is clearly Donald Trump <laughs> on the phone calling to pose as a Trump insider right. and plant favorable stories about Donald Trump to the National Enquirer, which he used to do apparently all the time,
1: long before he was running oh, for anything, just before. because he uh, right. he likes attention, he and, likes press coverage, and they
0: admitted back that they loved him. Yeah, they loved him as a subject because it was always some crazy thing about his divorce or his new girlfriend or whatever's going on, and they loved it. And he would call and pose as Jim Somebody, and <laughs> you know, and plant these stories. It's yeah, it's amazing clash of tabloid journalism with the headlines to getting to a point where we are now of nothing but spin not really facts just information to be spun and I found it fascinating that's scandalous and the next documentary is an exploration of the history and emotional power of cinema sound it's called Making Waves the Art of Cinematic Sound what sound
1: adds to picture is so exhilarating it's really half the movie
0: movies sight and sound we really express it with sound and sound. Sound is still the best way to experience emotion.
1: It's part of being human.
0: If you feel those goosebumps, then you've done it right. It's the single most labor-intensive editing process I've ever experienced. The work you all do makes these moments eternal.
1: How long have you been waiting to talk about this movie, George?
0: <laughs> yeah, as I admitted in the written review, uh, I am a sound nerd. Well, you I, are. I do a lot in my day job in the radio station. I do a lot of sound editing, yes. so uh, I come by it naturally, I guess. But but one of the best things about this documentary is that you don't have to be, and that's a real smart move by director Midge Coston, who is this is her first documentary, her first feature, but she's been in the sound editing business for quite a while now, and. She smartly doesn't make it too technical. So this can be really viewed uh, by somebody who is really technical about it Mm -hmm. or someone who's just a casual movie fan. Mm -hmm. Because there's lots of uh, chatter, there's lots of interviews with very famous faces. Yes. and, And what I liked about it was you get people like Spielberg on there. And it's it's kind of clear from their face they're not asked about sound much.
1: They seem excited.
0: Yeah, they do. Ang Lee and, and other big famous directors and they talk they they really stress upon you how important they find it. As as somebody maybe Ang Lee says, well it's it's half <laughs> the yeah. movies are sight and sound. Right. You know.
1: You know, and somebody else pointed out that it's the sound that triggers the emotion.
0: Yes, I think it's Spielberg. His quote is, uh, "The ear leads the eye to where the story goes," mm. uh, which is interesting. And so. You get that bit of insight from all these filmmakers and how, how important they treat sound. And then you get the history of sound design, and then you get introduced to the legends of sound editing, mm-hmm. which you're not going to know. You're not going to know their names, probably, unless you're a real cinephile. You're not going to know their names, certainly not as much as you know the Spielbergs or the Scorseses or people Stryzans. like that. Stry- you know, Streisand, uh, you have to include her because like so many other... Modern aspects of filmmaking modern sound design had its root in the 1970s sure so much happened in the 1970s and here's a bit that I did not know the first movie whose sound was stereo was Streisand's version of a star is born Mm -hmm. before that they had always just had one big speaker and that was it and she insisted and according to her she paid. Two million dollars, I think she, she said, out of her own pocket to have this done. And then the film became a big enough hit that she said, I didn't I didn't, I didn't have to pay it back. You know? <laughs> or, or I did get paid back. And anyway, it didn't really come out of her, her pocket. But anyway, she was so committed to the sound of that movie. And, of course, it was a musical, so it right. would be very important. Sure. But I did not realize that. So put her in there as well. But in the 1970s, all these maverick filmmakers started to do things differently and one of those things was to give a whole new level of importance to sound design. And so uh, you're introduced to the to the legends of that that still uh, are working today. So I think it could work as both a primer on sound design because you're a movie fan you want to get that little bit of it and it could also be a nice starter mm-hmm. if you're really into it and want to go do more research What could it could be? It could serve for that as well so I thought it was really enjoyable especially as a sound geek yeah. but, uh, it, it, even as a it's casu- a
1: fascinating movie yeah, it really even is. as a
0: casual movie fan I think you're going to like it it's making waves and with that let's head
1: to the lobby let's all go
0: to the lobby
1: let's all go to the lobby Let's
0: all go to the lobby. First in the lobby out this week on home video and streaming is Blinded by the Light. We're completely biased. Completely biased. (laughs) As Springsteen fans, but I just can't imagine how you wouldn't be charmed by this movie.
1: Yeah, it's an incredibly charming film. I mean, just go into it knowing that it's as earnest as a film could be. And if you just set your cynicism aside, it's, it's hard not to like this film. I mean, yes, it's. Loaded with Springsteen
0: music, but even if you're not a Springsteen fan, what it's really celebrating here is inspiration. Yeah. And it could be any other type of entertainer. It could be Taylor Swift. It's a, Thank the, God it's not. <laughs> it's based on the true story of the guy that wrote the book about right. being so right. inspired by Springsteen's music that he changed the course of his life to be a writer. And one aspect to some negative reviews that I did read over the last few months were... A couple that took the movie to task for too much Springsteen hero worship.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but that That's is the... what the movie is about. Yes. I mean, if he uh, weren't a hero, if he didn't worship him as his hero, he wouldn't have done all of these things. Yeah.
0: So I found that a little bit uh, a little bit curious. But it knows that it's bordering on cornball and it doesn't care. Its heart is right there, loudly on its sleeve. Yes, it is. And I thought we both thought it was incredibly charming and uh, some good tunes. Dora in the Lost City of Gold is out this week as well. And starring as Dora is a young actress we've actually been impressed by for a while now, Isabella Monerre. Uh, she's from Cleveland. She was the young girl Sicario in... Sicario,
1: too. Yes. Yeah. And then she was
0: really good in that instant family. Right. Which was better than a it lot of... It should have been. Yeah. <laughs> better than uh, <laughs> they got credit for. Her. But the, So she is very talented. And even though I didn't know much about Dora, really, as the show, because our son never watched it, really, when right. he was young. But she seemed a little old for the part. They she,
1: take care of it. I mean, they, they make good. it make sense in the film. I think that for fans of the show, there's enough, like, enough elements that you're going to appreciate and for I think parents who had to put up with the show it's very funny in the way it addresses Dora and her Dora-isms yeah Um, I thought it was enjoyable I mean it's slight it's for the family I remember that our friend Dave because we gave it a positive review took his kids and they liked it so that's endorsement enough I think
0: there you go and another one it's funny to me this has taken this long for this movie to come out on DVD it seems like we saw it Years ago, uh, Cold War, foreign film.
1: Right, because it was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film last year. So it's so we saw it last December. Mm-hmm. Nearly a year ago is when we saw it. And I think it streamed earlier than this, but it's finally available as a physical copy. Just a beautiful, poetic, unusual, fascinating film.
0: Mm-hmm. So that one is out as well. Looking ahead to next week, we've got three films we've already seen. <laughs> and, That's right. And one we're going to see here in a couple of days, Knives Out. Love it! is a, a very star-studded whodunit is finally coming out. Queen and Slim, which is a movie I saw last night, and I haven't even written the review yet, and I'm so excited to do it. It's one of those that's so good. I want to make sure I get it right. Right. Uh, Really, really enjoyed that. And you saw The Two
1: Popes. I did, because uh, uh, a lot of Catholicism uh, (laughs) in this background. So Uh,
0: That's out next week. And also uh, Shia LaBeouf's kind of autobiographical film. He's the writer, and he's also the star as his own father, Mm -hmm. Honey Boy comes out. And we're interested in that. We should see that in the next couple of days. So uh, good stuff to talk about next week and some good stuff to still keep talking about this week. If you want to chime in on any of the movies that we talked about this week, please do. You can find us on Twitter. That's the easiest way. We're at Mad Wolf, M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F. Also on Instagram and Facebook. It's Mad Wolf Columbus and the main website with all of our written reviews, our other podcasts, Fright Club, other fun stuff. You can always find us at madwolf.com, and we always appreciate you checking in.
1: And if you would take a second and just subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, we would super appreciate it. Yes, we would, super. So until next week, she is Hope Madden. And he's George Wolf. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya.
0: I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend. But tonight. Bye.